please turn also to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians. We are at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. I'll begin reading from verse 15 through verse 23. This also is God's word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our righteous Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you, Father, for giving us of your Son. We thank you, Father, that in Jesus we have our perfect righteousness, that in him we have one who willingly laid down his life to pay the price for our sins. Father, we acknowledge so great a salvation, so great a sacrifice that you have offered up for us so that we might have a relationship with you, that we might have right standing with you. Father, we thank you that Your power is manifested so clearly in your Son. And Father, we acknowledge that your power is manifested in changed lives, our own lives. And Father, we acknowledge that uh, we have so, so much more that we need to go, that we are so far from the perfect standard of Jesus, and yet you are one who has given us so kindly and so generously of your Spirit for encouragement, for growth. Father, we pray that we might look forward to when we will be perfected. Father, we pray that until that time that we would, uh, that we would not give up in the Christian life, that we would labor diligently for your glory, even as you have commanded us that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is Jesus who has given to, it, to us so freely. Father, we pray for your people, for their encouragement, for our humility, for the regular reminders of how your power is made perfect in our weakness. We pray, Father, that if any are here who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we pray, Father, that you would do a mighty work of conversion. We thank you, Father, for your mercy to us. We pray that your son Jesus would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. When we look at 
the life of Joseph in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. No one knew what God had planned for him. His brothers despised him. He was, was it the second youngest in his family, and they hated him. They wanted him dead. And though they thought, hey, we should kill him, and then they see these traitors coming, was it the Midianites, and they said, oh, no, wait a minute. Let us not, let's not kill him. He is our own flesh and blood. So instead, we'll sell him into slavery. And that he ends up in Potiphar's house, and then he becomes the chief servant in his house. And then something goes wrong, falsely accused of trying to take advantage of his wife, and then he's in prison, in the dumps again. And there, he works his way back up, right? And someone hears, is it the cupbearer and the bread baker? They hear. He interprets dreams. And then he ends up uh, still in prison. The cupbearer gets restored, and then he forgets about him. But then here, Pharaoh has these dreams, and, and then you have, oh, wait a minute, there is this Hebrew lad I met in prison when you were upset with me. And then he goes from there all the way up to be prime minister of Egypt. How often is it that we forget that God is the one who raises up one and brings down another? When we think about the life of Christ, think about the end of his life. How many people deserted him? How many people despised him? Then you think about his time on the cross, his time of, of uh, humiliation there, of people cursing him, people mocking him. And Jesus had said to his disciples some time before, what if you see or what if you saw Jesus ascending to where he was before? Here we acknowledge that despite where Jesus was, that he had the highest place in heaven. And after his death and resurrection, that he ascended to heaven and he's at God's right hand. And acknowledging that God's power is man- was manifested in Jesus Christ and raising him from the dead and putting him at his right hand, this same power is also at work in your life. Meaning that you are not left to yourself. You're not left to fend for yourself. That however, uh, however harsh, however difficult your circumstances are, we have to realize that God's power is manifested in us in every waking moment, every moment of our lives, in, in, until you are received up in glory. That God's power is manifested. Here we heard earlier of this chapter 1, Ephesians, that there are two really long sentences. So Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, this is basically the Apostle Paul's, um, his blurting out of the greatness of our salvation and the glory of our God. And then in verses 15 to 23, another huge long sentence, and this is a prayer. This is a Asking of God that he would give us a greater wisdom and understanding and revelation that we might know him. So we have in this passage, Ephesians 1 verses 20 to 23, God's power exalted Christ from the dead to be head over all things in heaven and earth for his church. 
God's power exalted Christ from the dead to be head over all things in heaven and earth for his church. We'll look at this in three points. The first is God's power in Christ's resurrection. Second, God's power in Christ's session. Third, God's power in Christ's dominion. So the first point, God's power in Christ's resurrection in the first part of verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Here we have the context, which is the Apostle Paul praying. He begins by giving thanks for God's work in the lives of the Ephesians, these Ephesian Christians. He heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. That these, these are qualities that we, we should expect to see in every believer, that there would be faith in Jesus Christ, that faith would lead us to make decisions that are contrary to the standards of the world, that, that faith would guide our actions, our thoughts, our beliefs. And then also faith would be manifested in love. That we who once hated others would learn to love those who resemble and honor Jesus Christ. That there would be a, a common understanding that all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, that these are those, these are people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. These are those that we should call brothers and sisters in Christ. He prays for uh, a spirit of wisdom and revelation for the knowledge of Jesus. And the result of this would be that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. And it results in three things. That we would have uh, the hope to which he has called you. Understanding that God has called us to a new way, to a new life. And this new life in faith brings us hope. Also, it tells us about the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Whatever poverty you have in this life, uh, whatever disinheritance you've suffered, because you may, you may have uh, chosen a different God than your parents, your ancestors, that that is immaterial because there is an exceedingly great inheritance awaiting you. And then the immeasurable power toward us who believe. That God's power is at work in your life. Just as it was in Christ's life in raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand. Here we speak about the centrality of the resurrection for the Christian faith. I'm sure all of you are familiar with how important the resurrection is. It's very interesting that... uh, Jesus spoke several times about how he would die and how he would be raised up again. We have one account of that in Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. So, in order to prove Jesus wrong... Here, Jesus has set a high bar, understanding that if any one thing that Jesus said turns out to be false, his testimony is completely gone. If any one thing that Jesus says is untrue, any prophecy that is not fulfilled, then the entire religion, we can say, is questioned. So you can expect that when Jesus says this, that there would be opposition. The Apostle Paul 
gave a candid admission of how important the resurrection is when he says that if there is no resurrection, you are most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15, 16-19. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Here he's saying, if there is a Savior, he cannot remain in the grave. If he remained in the grave, he didn't resurrect, it only proves that he's a sinner. And a Savior who is a sinner is no Savior at all. And he's saying, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. <clears throat> the resurrection is so important because it's the basis of your justification. Romans 4.25 He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. This is why there was so much opposition to Christ, his work, and eventually his resurrection. Think about Herod. <clears throat> Here, Herod hears about this great king, this great ruler who will come. It seems as if Herod was concerned that Christ's reign would threaten his own. So he inquired with the Magi, he inquired with these wise men about when Jesus would come. And then apparently he thought the wise men tricked him. So then he, he sent and he had every male child under the age of two executed. And before that time, it was an angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph, get your family out of there. So they, they went to Egypt, they fled there, and Herod went and slaughtered all the boys under the age of two. Because here you have a madman king, or madman ruler, who was concerned about his own reign. You have also the opposition from Satan. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, you have Satan attempting to test Jesus and tempt Jesus. For a sinful savior is no savior at all. A sinful savior cannot save. So he tempted Jesus. And it wasn't as if that was his only temptation. We're told that he, that he basically left afterwards and he left looking for a more opportune time, meaning that this temptation that Satan tried with Jesus was not merely in Matthew 4. It was throughout his life. The opposition does not end there. Think about the words that Jesus spoke to Peter. That in one of these passages, one of these instances where Jesus is telling his disciples that he, he would be uh, rejected by the elders and the chief priests that he would be killed and after three days he would rise again and Peter opposed him. God forbid that. And then Jesus' harshest rebuke to Peter, get behind me Satan. Right? You're setting your mind on not the things of God but the things of man. Here, it's as if Jesus was saying, hey listen, you're being just like your, your fellow disciples James and John who came to Jesus saying, Hey, we have a favor to ask of you. Can, can we sit one on your right and one on your left? And, and, and here, Jesus, not far from going to the cross, you start to wonder, wait a minute, who is Jesus entrusting the church with? 
right here, these men are asking about their own advancement, their own power, their own position. It's exactly what Peter was thinking. No, Jesus, you have to rise to the top because we're loyal to you and we want to, to grab onto your coattails too. And you see how the lives of these disciples, these men who would be apostles, was it only one who died a natural death? The apostle John was at the, on the island of Patmos. The rest of them died as martyrs. There was much learning. There was much sanctification in the lives of God's people and these apostles. Yet God is one, by his power, secured Christ's path to death and also to his resurrection. Here, it doesn't end there. We think also about the Jewish leaders. These Jewish leaders, they remembered what Jesus said. Hey, they called him deceiver. This deceiver had said that he would rise again. So the Jewish leaders uh, went to, was a Pilate, and said to him, Hey, do you remember what he said? That he would rise again. So his, his disciples are going to come to try to move uh, that stone and steal out and take his body. And Pilate said, Hey, you have temple guards. Go make it as secure as you know how. So they got the Roman soldiers, and they made it as secure. They put the Roman seal there. And then the angel came, moved the stone. Jesus, raised from the dead, could not be contained. And then the false story circulated, Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15. Here, the Jewish leaders, they heard from these Roman soldiers what had happened. And they said, okay, we're going to give you this huge sum of money. And why don't you tell everyone that uh, you, fell you fell asleep and, or, or was it the, you, know, you, you fell asleep and disciples came and took his body. And when the governor hears about this rumor, we'll make sure you don't die. You realize that false attempts and, and petty attempts like this never seem to hold together. The reason why is because <clears throat> these men weren't executed. You see, if, if they truly did fall asleep or get bribed, either one should have resulted in their death. They, they had a job to protect that Roman seal. And if they, they didn't do it, they should have been executed. And that's what everyone would have been wondering. Why weren't they executed? Right? And they would have told other people, no, this is what happened. Right? Angel came body taken. And so here, we also are left with the question, where's the body? The apostles came and they took the body. Where is the body? And also we have the preponderance of witnesses of Christ's resurrection. Seen by the women in Christ's life, seen by the apostles and then seen by James, and then seen by the Apostle Paul, and seen by over 500 witnesses. And as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, some of whom are still alive today. Meaning, you could even go and talk to them. They're still alive. You can hear firsthand that Christ's resurrection happened. Here, think for a moment about what this resurrection power shows forth. Romans 1.4. This proves that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. 
He who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. That Jesus was raised from the grave, it proved that he had no sin. The only man who has no sin is Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. Acts 17.31 In Paul's sermon to the Athenians, he says that God is one who demonstrated that he will send one to judge the entire world. And the proof was that he raised them from the dead. So that this Jesus would be the one, is the one appointed by God to judge the whole world. There's also implications for you. There's also implications for you. In 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus is the first fruit. All you who are trusting in Jesus Christ are trusting that he is the forerunner. He is the first of many resurrections. That he was raised from the dead and that you look forward to when you also will be raised from the dead. Death could not contain him. And by faith, death won't contain you either. It's also true that Christ's resurrection regarding your present life, that your present life in Christ now is new. It's not old. It's new. In Romans 6, 4, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Here, God's power manifested in Christ's resurrection is manifested in your life right now. That the things you once loved, the sin that you once desired and once did, you no longer do. Because he's the one who's breaking that power of sin in your life. That he's raised you to new life. It's a new life in Christ. It's not like your old life. It's a new one. That your loves are changed. That your thinking is changed. That your actions are changed. And that this is not, oh, wait a minute, I I heard this message. And uh, yeah, I, I just take it out every once in a while and think about it. Like once a year and think about it. No, this is something that we think about all the time, every, every waking moment of our lives, how we have a risen Savior in Jesus Christ. And that the lives we once lived, we willingly leave behind so that we might live new lives for His glory. This is, this, this is the first point of power in Christ's resurrection. We have also God's power in Christ's session in verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Here, the description is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Here, we can say that It's not a description of location, but of position. What does that even mean? It's not a description of location, because God 
doesn't even have a right hand. You understand that? God the Father, he doesn't possess a body. The Holy Spirit is a spirit with no body. Jesus is the only person in the Trinity who has a body. So the description of that God's right hand is not a physical location. It's a description about a position. It's a position, symbolic position. It's the highest honor, authority, and power that anyone has. In Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here, perhaps you're also wondering, what is the difference between Jesus' resurrection and his session? When we say his session, it means that he's, he's seated. So his resurrection declares that Jesus lives forever. That he's raised from the dead, he lives forever. And that when we say Jesus is sitting at God's right hand, it means that Jesus reigns forever. That's the distinction. Resurrection to life and that Jesus sitting at God's right hand means that he reigns forever. Here, the description about Jesus sitting at God's right hand, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. So here, you look at the end of verse 20 and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the description about Christ's session. And then verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So verse 21 is a description of the latter half of verse 20. Describes what it means for Jesus to be sitting at God's right hand in the heavenly places. Here, these four words... Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. That this is describing the realm of angelic power. So we know a little bit of something uh, here. The third word, power, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But for the Jews who grew up in the Greek culture... They had it translated to Greek. So that's called the Greek Old Testament. And there's a term often used, the uh, Lord of hosts or the angelic hosts. That that word hosts is the same word used for power. So when Jesus, correcting Peter, he says, Do you not realize that I I could call upon 12 legions of angels to come help? Essentially, you think about a legion. <clears throat> a legion would have been what a a, um, a group of what five somewhere between five or six thousand Roman soldiers <clears throat> that they have their ranks. They have their ranks, right? So the Roman army within a legion would have ranks within it. We would also assume that angels would have their ranks. The term archangel. So these four terms: rule, authority, power, and dominion. Very similar. Later we'll see in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, getting to the armor of God, 
The Apostle Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And notice that there's also about four terms mentioned, right? So there he's saying it's not flesh and blood. Your enemies aren't humans. The, the enemies are in the angelic realm. They're, they're these demons, right? So here we, we need to remember that um, the enemies are not the people who are in authority, people who are kings and rulers. You think about Psalm 2, right? The nations rage, but... Who are they taking orders from? Who's, who's guiding them? You know, you look at Ephesians 2 about uh, the prince of the power of the air being Satan, how he is at work in the sons of disobedience. That the rulers of this world are merely following the, the lead of the demons. And we think here, we think here about God's promise to his son. We read earlier in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Realize that here, this statement, this statement is, is a messianic statement. In fact, when Jesus was dialoguing with these religious leaders, <clears throat> that's the question that he asked these religious leaders to to stop them from talking. So he asked them uh, who the Messiah is, and they said, the Messiah is the son of David. And then he asked them this question, well, how is it that David said, the Lord said to my Lord? So they were stumped. For David to write, the Lord, meaning God, says to my Lord, meaning the son of David, my son. So he's asking the question, how is it that David is calling his son my Lord? Right? The, Jew is, the Jews understood that a father is always greater than the son. And the only way this can be true is because David is talking about the Messiah to come, who is God. So he's his son, the son of David, but he is his Lord because he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're also told in the book of Hebrews, <clears throat> Hebrews 1, how the angels... The author there, he makes this distinction. He says, hey, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? To none of them did he say that, only to his son. Here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, we're told not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Meaning that Jesus is ruling. He's sitting and he's ruling even now. Notice for a moment. <clears throat> notice here that in chapter 1, verse 20, <clears throat> the description about Jesus, and then in chapter 2, verse 6, the description about all of you. 1, verse 20, about Jesus says, He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then for all of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, in chapter 2, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And notice the, the parallel. There's, it's very similar how it sounds. The distinction is that 
We're not at God's right hand. Only Jesus is at God's right hand, the highest position. But we're told that we're seated with him, that we're raised up with him, and we're seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, we're told that if we endure, we will also reign with him. That we look forward to when we will reign with Jesus in the heavenly places. In 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul addresses this matter of reigning with Christ. When he rebukes the Corinthians for when they have disputes, they go before non-Christian secular judges to decide to decide and and to arbitrate their situation. And he says, do you not realize that we will judge angels? And this is reigning with Christ, that we will sit in judgment of even angels. And this is not because we have any high position. It's because, because we're reigning with Christ. Christ is one who will judge them. Here, we're also reminded that Jesus being elevated to the highest position, that he's at God's right hand, and we're told that he makes intercession for us. Did you ever want to have a friend in high places? Did you ever want to have a friend who can make a call and fix things for you? Everyone would like to have such a friend, but you realize you have no greater friend than your friend in Jesus Christ. He's at God's right hand, And that when you pray, that he is the one who makes intercession for you. This is why we say that we pray in Jesus' name. It's because he's the one who assures us that our prayers are both heard and answered. Now that's not a promise that whatever you ask for you will receive, right? It's a promise that Jesus will answer those prayers, right? It may take years, right? And he may give us something else, but that something else is always far better than what we ask for. That we just need faith and the wisdom to understand that. Here, to be seated with Christ. This is a reminder that you and I need all the time. Realize that the Christian life is not supposed to be an easy life. Anyone who thinks, I'm going to become a Christian so that my life will be easier. I don't know about the rest of you, but I think it's actually the opposite. Right? You become a Christian, and your life becomes more difficult. Right? It's then for reason, because if you became a Christian and your life became easy, there'd be no reason for you to trust in Jesus Christ. There'd be no reason for you to pray every day. It's because life becomes difficult, life becomes challenging, that you have a greater need of prayer, and you see your greater dependence on the Lord Jesus. And so here, this power in Christ being seated at God's right hand, it's a comfort to you. It's a comfort to you, knowing that this power is at work in you, and that you are not devoid of power, right? We've come to realize our own weakness, but we also come to realize the power that God Manifests in our lives that we have in Jesus Christ who is seated at his right hand. In Romans 8, 18, the Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the suffering of this present time 
are not worthy, the sufferings, sorry, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So whatever suffering you have in this life, however painful, however shameful, however humiliating, realize it won't be compared. There'll be no comparison to the glory that will be revealed to you. That power, indeed, is in our Lord Jesus, and that we are united to him in that power because he's at God's right hand. So that's the second point, God's power in Christ's session. We have the third point, God's power in Christ's dominion in verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In the previous verse, it speaks about how Jesus is far higher than all other authorities and powers. Here, we're told the, the other description that all things are under him. All things referring to all things in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, we're told in Philippians 2.10. That every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That there will be either a willing submission or there will be a submission under duress. This is everything in heaven and earth and under the earth are going to be under Christ's feet. This is God's promise. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Here, we have to make clear that all things, all things in heaven and earth and under the earth, Jesus has under his feet and we're told it's for the benefit of his church. You realize that? It's for the benefit of his church. In John chapter 19, here's Pilate speaking to Jesus. He asks Jesus something, and Jesus has no response to him. And then Pilate says to Jesus, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? So, so here Pilate is thinking, Hey, hey buddy, you're not going to talk to me. You realize... I can either set you free or have you crucified. And, and then Jesus speaks up. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus perhaps could have said it even more directly. You wouldn't have authority over me unless I gave it to you. Essentially what he's saying. <clears throat> Here, we also think about the Great Commission. But the beginning part of the Great Commission is Jesus telling his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So it's a reminder to us that Jesus has all things under his feet. He possesses all authority. Everything is subject to him. All the enemies, Satan and all his minions, are underneath him. Under his power and authority. You remember the, the story about the man who was naked and chained, uh, the garrison demoniac, and how these demons, they were fearful of Jesus, 
have you come to torment us? They understood. They all knew. Hey, listen. We are under judgment until the time comes. We'll be thrown into the lake of fire. Eternally to be tormented. They understood their end. What they didn't understand then was the timing. Jesus said, no, it's not time yet. He asked to be released into the pigs and they went and they drowned all these pigs. This is a reminder for you and for me that we do not need to fear flesh and blood because even the forces of darkness are subject to Jesus. He is far superior to them all. Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So when we go about our lives, when we think about the work of the church, when we think about the growth and the advancement of God's church, Christ's church, here reminded that everything in heaven and earth have been, has been put under Christ's authority. And the benefit is for you, his people. So that when we go out proclaiming this good news, sharing this good news, that Christ reigns, that Christ died and was raised again on behalf of sinners, understand we need not fear because all authority has been given to Jesus. And we think about the lives that we have. We think about how in the book of Acts, how often these Followers of Jesus were tormented and persecuted. And then we say, why are those things happening? That's all part of God's grand plan. They're all under Christ's authority. That every sin committed against God's people will be accounted for. Either it's paid for by Christ or it will be paid for eternally in hell. But you, when you and I go about our lives, will we not, will we not live in fear? Because those outside the church, those inside the church, everyone is under Christ's authority. That we need not fear because he is with us. He promised that he would be with us. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you and